Well, thank you again for the opportunity to be with you and to bring a lesson from God's Word. You can be turning in your Bibles to Psalm 133, the 133rd Psalm. And we're going to read this together and just introduce our topic. Um, and then we'll get into some other places in Scripture that will help us understand it better. Uh, Psalm 133 reads this way. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. When this psalm uh, written by David starts with, look or behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. We have to understand how rare that is. It was rare in the life of David. It's rare in our time for people who are of the same nation, of the same tribe, of the same family, to actually dwell together in a unified way. Just think of all the division that you see in our country uh, and just all of the places that um, men live together. And you realize that unity is one of those rare and precious things. In fact, that's the language that's used in verse 1. Two words that I think maybe have taken a beating in our language. It is good and it is pleasant. If you were to ask me how I was doing and my response to you was, well, I'm doing good you would wonder what was wrong. Why aren't you great? Um, but in the Bible, the word good is of the highest things. In fact, you might even just look in your Bible a couple of chapters on. At the beginning of Psalm 136, verse 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. When the Bible says that it's good for brothers to dwell together in unity, good is as good as God itself, himself. Uh, the other word pleasant, you know, uh, I think sometimes when I use that word that oh, I had a pleasant time, we don't really hear or feel the force of it. Uh, in the original language, the idea of something that was pleasant was sometime attached to beautiful, soothing music that you would listen to and it would calm you and it would make you feel at peace. Uh, but that's the way that God describes unity. It is good and it is pleasant. And as we know, it's rare. But then he uses some illustrations that might be a little bit strange to us. Um, you see there in verse 2, he says, Unity is like uh, the oil or precious oil upon the head coming down uh, on the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down to the edge of his robes. So when God wanted to illustrate how beautiful and good and pleasant unity was, he decided to describe oil being poured over the head of the priest. And if I was to illustrate that for you, I wonder if that's what you would think. Would you think good and pleasant? Because uh, in my mind, oil coming down over my head and running down and dripping down my beard and then down my clothes. And if I stood in front of you and said, isn't this beautiful? You might say, well, that looks more like a mess to me. Uh, that's kind of gross. So what is this about? And why would God choose this as a way to illustrate unity? 
Some of it might have to do with this idea of the precious oil in verse 2. I'm not going to take the time to do this with you, but if you'd like to in your own time sometime, go back to Exodus chapter 30, uh, starting around verse 22. And those of you that are into essential oils and things like that, uh, you'll probably get a kick out of this text. But before God had oil that was going to be poured upon the heads of the priests to anoint them, he actually gave a recipe for a whole bunch of very expensive oils, some of them coming as far as uh, the furthest places east, all the way to China. And he described how they could take all of these expensive, beautiful oils and put them together in a mixture that he would then allow no one else to imitate. In fact, if you tried to take this recipe and make these oils for, your, for, them, for yourself, you, would, you could be excommunicated from the, the people of Israel. It was that precious. It was only for the priests. Um, you can read all of that there in that text in Exodus. But maybe the idea of unity being described this way is all those different oils and fragrances that would be mixed together into one oil, it's hard to distinguish where one begins and another leaves off. Once they're united in that oil... It's not something you can separate. But even the, the image of it running down on the head all the way to the hem of the garment or the edge of his robes at the bottom down there by his feet, that creates a picture. You see, the head and the edge of the robe down at the bottom, those are about as far away from each other as they can be. But that oil running down unites the top of Aaron's head to the very bottom of his robe. In fact, that's kind of like the next illustration. Look at verse, uh, uh, verse 3. says, It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountain of Zion. And what's that about? Uh, those of you that are Bible students, that you've done some geography work, you might remember that Mount Hermon is all the way up in the furthest northern areas of Israel, way up above the Sea of Galilee. And the picture of the, of the dew falling upon that mountain and the snow and the rain that might fall up there. But then it says there, it also is coming down upon the mountains of Zion, which is all the way in the south, down there where Jerusalem is. So again, you have something like the head and the edge of the robe, something in the far north and the far south regions of Israel being united together by the dew and the rain and the, the moisture that falls on that land. And it may have even have something to do with how the water in the north would travel down to the south and sort of united the region that way. Really, they are beautiful illustrations if we understand them in their time. But one last thing I want you to notice about this psalm before we go to our text for this lesson uh, is the last thing it says in verse 3. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What is the there in that verse? You have a couple of options. If you look right there in the verse, he might be talking about Zion. And again, uh, you know that scripture teaches that Jesus was going to come to Zion and his scepter as king would be extended from Zion. And really because Jesus both died there and began to reign there, um, there was a commandment that went out from that mountain, life forevermore to all of us who belong to Jesus Christ. Maybe that's the idea. 
But I'm going to suggest something a little bit um, more appropriate to the text. I, I, I don't believe that he's referring necessarily to Zion or even Mount Hermon in the verse. But remember what the context of the psalm is. Go back to verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I really believe that what he's saying is the there at the end of the chapter is that place of unity. And that just makes sense. It was in what Jesus would do in unifying us that we would find life forevermore. You see, even if you try to think, well, yeah, I found life when I came to Zion and I I fell at the cross of Christ and he saved my life. And so life forevermore with me and him. But those of you that did come to Jesus, you know that you didn't just find life simply because it was you and him together, but because of all of the people that he united you with. You have found an amazing, abundant life because of the unity that you have in the body of Christ. In fact, that's what heaven's going to be. It's going to be all the souls of men that Jesus has united through all of the centuries, living together forever in this good and pleasant unity that he's described. But I'm going to be honest with you. Unity is one of those topics that has always troubled me as a Christian. Uh, It's always been a difficult thing for me to understand and to wrap my mind around. Um, Do we really have unity? The world looks upon people that call themselves Christians and they see all kinds of division and all kinds of trouble. Perhaps they even come and visit our congregation and they wonder, are we really a unified group? I'll say more about that, but be be turning in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. This is going to be our text for this lesson. I'm going to make some observations from it, and I could really do a series that would just cover so many things in this text. In fact, I did a series here at home a few years ago, and it it lasted all year, at least 12 lessons, one a month, from this text about unity. But when I was growing up in Southern California at a small church in San Diego, if you'd asked me about that church... um, I would have told you that it was my family, and I felt unified with them. They loved me, I loved them. It was a place of peace and harmony and help in my life. But on the other hand, that little congregation suffered all kinds of trouble. It wasn't always unified. We were racked by division and and trouble over the years, depending on what happened in those, those years. Um, and so again, it always troubled me to sort of answer the question, Are we really unified, and is life good and pleasant for the people of God in this place? I'm not sure uh, how you would answer the question, but I'll go ahead and get you to think about it. If I went around your congregation and I asked every person, is this congregation of God's people unified? I'm certain I would find some people that would say, yes, no doubt about it. We are unified. We are one people. But I'm pretty sure that I would find some folks that would say, to be honest, we're not. We don't know each other like we should. We don't love as deeply as we should. Some of us feel disconnected. Some of us believe one thing. Some of us believe another. We don't seem to be on the same page with a lot of things. And you would have people talking about that. 
So who would be right? I want to draw your attention to this passage in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 16. It's a little bit of a lengthy reading. But what I want you to notice as we read is that the idea of unity is going to come up a couple of times. And it's actually this passage of scripture that really helped me finally make peace with the tension that I always felt with the idea of unity in the body of Christ. So let's read, and then I'll make some observations with you. Starting in verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of, a, of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And again, I'll say, there are countless wonderful lessons in that passage. But I want to draw your attention to two verses. And these two verses that use the word unity, but describe unity in two slightly different ways. I believe being thoughtful about these passages and really thinking about the nuances of these two kinds of unity in the Bible will help us as a church to not only celebrate what God has already done in bringing us together, but continue to pr press forward and achieve what God hopes for us when it comes to unity. The first one is verse 3. Look again with me at chapter 4 in Ephesians verse 3 when he says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, versions, uh, different versions of the Bible may use different words here. My New American Standard says uh, to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Your version might say to keep it or to maintain it. But if I ask you to keep something, or maintain something, or preserve something, 
What does that imply about the thing I'm asking you to preserve or keep or maintain? Doesn't it imply that it already exists? Uh, Here is a very important truth. When Jesus adds people to his church, when somebody obeys the gospel of God, and they are joined to the body of Christ, we are one. We are unified by and through the Spirit of God. If you want to understand that phrase a little bit more, you can go back just a couple of chapters to Ephesians chapter 2, when he is describing uh, how Jesus tore down the barrier and the dividing wall between people. Look there just at verse 16 of chapter 2. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. There are other places that describe the one body of the church. Places like 1 Corinthians chapter um, 12, when that great text where you had a church that was disjointed and arguing about things, and Paul would say to them in 1 Corinthians 12, you are one body. He would even use the same language uh, when he would say, um, verse 11 of that chapter, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Verse 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So, back there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, when he says, we need to preserve the unity of the Spirit. What a wonderful thought this is. That God put all of us who have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ by his Spirit into one body. He accomplished that. Now, here's his request in verse 3. Don't ruin it. Don't mess it up. Don't cause trouble. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus said that about marriage, but it's true of anything that God puts together. Now that's just the first kind of unity, and that's the responsibility we have toward it. Now skip down to verse 13 in this same chapter. Chapter 4, verse 13 says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now notice, verse 3 said there was a unity of the Spirit that we were told to preserve or keep or maintain. But here in this verse, it says that God wanted us to attain to the unity of the faith. You see, it's a mistake when we speak of unity, to think that unity is just one thing. The Bible describes in this text even that there are two kinds of unity. There's a unity of the Spirit that's already been accomplished by God and our responsibility is to preserve it. But there is a unity of the faith that God has put in front of us and asked for us to attain to 
That's a different word than preserve. Your version might say to arrive at or to reach or to come to. And that means it doesn't exist yet. It's a constant pursuit of God's people. You know, as I began to meditate on these a number of years ago, when I noticed that those verses described two kinds of unity and two responsibilities, it really helped me begin to understand why we have sometimes a discomfort with unity in the church. You know, normally you would reverse the order of something like this. Normally what I would tell you is, go attain or reach that thing and then preserve it. But God flips the order here. Essentially what he says is, I put you all together in one family. That unity has been accomplished. Preserve it. But then he goes ahead and calls us to attaining to this unity of the faith, this pursuit of truth and understanding of all things related to Jesus and his teaching and his way. And we were supposed to continue to arrive at it. You know, when I moved to my very first work as a preacher, um, it was a congregation of a little more than 100 folks. Um, there, was no, there were no elders in that particular congregation. I was young. And I was excited about all of the things that were going to go on in that place. But there were two strong personalities there. Um, and they always kind of gave me trouble. I, I loved both of their spirits, and I learned a lot from both of these men. One was younger, one was older. But they were the two men that I had the most trouble with as a young preacher. Uh, because here's how one of them always talked. He would say about our church, Ah, oh, isn't it great? We're all one, and we all love each other, and we're just everything so wonderful here because of what God has done. I loved that spirit about him. But there was this other guy who would always say, you know, this church is kind of a mess. That person over there doesn't believe the right things about this, and somebody over here is not on the same page with somebody over here, and we've not heard any teaching on this particular subject, and young preacher, you need to preach on those things. And so as I tried to present what, what I believe the scriptures would say about any given doctrine or any given thing, that man would say, that's right. Get them told. we got to be unified. And the other guy, who was constantly talking about how wonderful everything was, would kind of get upset. Don't talk about any of that stuff, because that could, you know, cause division here. So, which of those guys was right? Who was right? That the church was unified and wonderful? And, or was the other guy right? That there were a lot of things that we didn't have we weren't speaking as one voice on some things. I finally came to figure out because of a passage like this, they were both right. But there was kind of some mistakes being made. Uh, the one man who was always celebrating the fact that God had put us into one family, he never really wanted to pay attention to verse 13. He wasn't interested in attaining to the unity of the faith. That was too difficult. That was too scary in some ways, he was lazy and afraid. But God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And he told us, even in this same text, to speak the truth, verse 15, in love. Yes, 
We need to love each other and be one, but we need to speak the truth. Now, here was the other problem. The man that I described that was always talking about all the the doctrinal differences, it seemed like he rarely celebrated what God had already done. He didn't talk very much about the joy of all being one family. He was simply moaning about the fact that we hadn't all grown up yet. Uh, But you see, that was God's wisdom, wasn't it? To put us together as one people in one family and say, I want you to see what I've accomplished. See, this, this first kind of unity, it's, it's where we have come from. And it's all the things that God has done. We would never have been together as one if it hadn't have been for Jesus. But look at what he's done, putting Jew and Greek and slave and free and male and female and people of every tribe and tongue into one family. Only God could do that. And we're told to preserve that unity. But at the same time, when all those people get together, there's going to be different levels of understanding and maturity and, and, and ideas about things. And God doesn't say just ignore that or sweep it under the rug or pretend it doesn't exist. He says in verse 13 of this passage, attain to the unity of the faith. Now, I, I'll suggest that if you meditate on that and think about it and, and wrestle with those ideas, It'll begin to help us understand what it means to be a true family of God. Let me show you that this idea is actually in Scripture in some places. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. This might be the best one to start with because it's when God first began to put the church together. Acts chapter 2. You, of course, are probably familiar with this passage where on the day of Pentecost, uh, some 50 days after Passover, All of the most devout Jews from all over the world had gathered on Passover, and only the most devout would have stayed until Pentecost. And Peter got up on this day when the Holy Spirit was poured out by God. And he preached a sermon about Jesus Christ, and many people came to believe and were baptized into Christ. Now listen to the language here. Um, When they ask in verse 37... They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day were added about 3,000 souls. Stop there if you would. Was that church unified? I mean, when verse 41 says that when they were baptized into Jesus Christ, they were added to the church, to that group, those 3,000 souls, was that one family, one church? Absolutely. No doubt about it. Was that something to celebrate? For sure. But let's imagine we were there. And we're looking at what God has done. And we begin to wander around and and ask questions of all these 3,000 who were just introduced to Jesus Christ and believed. And if I said to them, hey, 
What did Jesus teach about this particular thing? Or what did Jesus say on that particular occasion when he was with the woman at the well? Some of them would just stare at me blankly, not knowing what I was talking about, because they only knew some things, but not all the things. And then if you kept asking questions about what they understood about the faith, you would probably begin to think these people aren't very unified at all. And you'd be right when it came to that. So look at the next verse. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Well, why? Why would people who'd all been joined together not just spend all of their time celebrating the fact that they were together? Well, because they needed to attain to the unity of the faith. And that meant that they had to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they would learn, and they would grow, and some of them eventually would become teachers. But that doesn't happen right away. In fact, I don't know anything about your congregation, so I don't know who the last person was that was baptized there. But whoever it was, do you believe that when they were baptized into Jesus Christ, They were as much a part of the body of Christ as you. Were they one with God's people? Absolutely. They were united in the spirit of the Lord. But, do they know what you know? Are they ready to teach a Bible class? Do they understand the things about the faith in Scripture? What's true about all things? No. But you know what we don't do if we're really God's people? We don't ignore that. We don't hide from it. We're not afraid of the truth or asking questions about what God has taught us. We take both of these verses in Ephesians chapter 4 seriously. Yes, God's made us one. But there is a unity to still be achieved. In fact, let me show you one more passage about this before I end the lesson with a couple of illustrations. Look at Luke chapter, excuse me, John, John chapter 17. When Jesus prayed that great prayer, when he prayed not only for his apostles, but also for us that would learn about him from the apostles, you know that one of the things he prayed for here was our unity. Um, Listen to the way he prays in verse 20 of, of John 17. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, and that they may be, listen to this phrase, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Earlier in this text, Jesus had prayed that that we would be sanctified in the truth. And here he prays that we would be perfected in unity. You know the reality of it? Not one of our congregations, not the whole of the body of Christ, is yet perfected in unity. We are unified. 
But we still need to attain to the unity of the faith. In every generation, every time there's someone new, every time there's a new part of the body that's added who is immature, it's a pursuit we can never give up on. I want to end with just a couple of illustrations of this. This is just kind of how life works. My boys, I have two of them. Uh, They're both almost fully grown now. And I remember when they were born and they came out into the world, I was amazed that that little body was perfectly united. God put all the fingers and toes and parts of that body together. And it was an amazing thing, something to celebrate. But you know, even though they were one body, their body didn't really know how to work together yet. Every part didn't do its share. There was some time that it was going to take for them to even realize that they were one body. Do you ever remember your children, how they would drool or how they would scratch themselves? I remember sometimes my kids would put their hand on their face and they didn't even know it was their hand and it would kind of scare them. Um, Something that is unified, yet still has a lot of work to do for everything to work together. And then you watched them get older. I watched them grow up. And they started to become more coordinated. And their body worked together. And they became athletes. And they they began to run around and do amazing things. And then I thought, oh, well, they got it all down. They're one body and everything works together just right. Until they hit their awkward phase. And uh, sometimes little bodies grow faster than they're ready for. And you remember that? When they got gangly and they got clumsy and they weren't sure how to use their bigger, stronger body. Churches go through similar things. Sometimes they find their rhythm and everything's working right, but then as they grow and sometimes they grow in ways they didn't expect and things get awkward again. And then you have these moments where you figure it out and you live through maybe even a couple of decades where your body's working together fine, but then you get old. And that body who's still one begins to have trouble again. I think you understand the illustration that a body, even the body of Christ, can be one while still having to continually learn to work together and to be on the same page with things. I remember when my boys got to the age of playing sports. Uh, Both of them played soccer. And I got to be the coach. And I remember when all the kids came out on the field, Uh, This was our team, one team. And that's how we talked when we would get in a huddle. Hey, we're all one team. And you would hear me talk like that, and you would say, hey, you've got a unified team, but then you'd watch us play. And oh, it was a mess. Somebody would say, you guys aren't in sync at all. You guys are, you know, all over the place. That's right, because some of these kids had never played soccer. They didn't even know where their feet were. And other kids were outstanding. And then you had to deal with attitudes. The kids who were really good would sometimes look down at the kids who didn't know anything. And the, little, and the kids who didn't know anything would sometimes be jealous of the people who were good at things. But you know what I always kept telling them? We're one team. Be patient with one another. By the way, back in our text in Ephesians 4, that's how it starts. That the way we maintain the unity of the Spirit or preserve it if you go to the verse before it, is with humility and gentleness and patience, tolerance and love. 
But the other thing that we needed to do was to teach the kids who still needed to learn. And so we needed to attain to the unity of all the things that we could do together as we developed our skills and understood the game. It's no different for the body of Christ. I hope these thoughts will help you, maybe comfort you a little bit, those of you that have been in the faith for some time, uh, seeing these things in the text themselves, that there are two kinds of unity and we have responsibilities to those. Perhaps we'll do more lessons in the future on some of the details of that, but I'm thankful for your attention and I hope this has been a blessing to you.